Sister Donna, and good evening. That was a beautiful song, Justin. I used to sing that. Some of the dark days, the heavy days of Bible College president, and a lot of burdens, finance, and all the rest. Walking to my office, I would sing that. He can carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. I know he can carry me. Thank you for that song. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the Revelation, chapter 2. Last night, the emphasis was somewhat corporate. I was talking to the church. It was a little bit of a, like a stadium light. It just lights up everything. Tonight, we're going to get rid of the stadium light and pull out the laser. And we're going to move from the corporate to the personal. This is going to be directly to each of us. You know, we again, we throw the term revival around pretty loosely. It's been a long, long time since America has had revival. And uh, it's pretty rare to even be an experience revival, but it's always there. It was Charles Finney who said, the wind of revival constantly blows from the heart of God. The only problem is we just need to trim our sails to catch that wind because he's anxious and more than ready to do what needs to be done in our lives. It's you and I need to make that adjustment and to catch the wind of revival. And so tonight we're going to dig a little deeper and kind of dig around the roots of our own personal tree. We're going to do so by going to the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 2. I know your pastor, or former pastor, I guess is more appropriate, uh, Brother Tony is uh, sort of an expert in the book of Revelation. I know he speaks, he has some series that he does in Revelation. It's not an easy book. It's a complicated book, but chapter 2 and chapter 3 is fairly forthright. It's a portrait of the churches. And those were, they are indeed seven historical churches. So it's very much a present word. John was writing to historical churches like the one sitting here, as a group of people were there. So it was a present word. It's also a prophetic word because each one of those churches can describe any church at any given time throughout the whole 2,000 centuries or 2,000 years of the church. But it's a personal word because guess what? Churches are made up of people. And this church, you can say, you can sit over here and point your finger to somebody over here, or you can sit in the middle and point both ways. Um, Say, well, that's that's what we need. They, They really need this. The truth of the matter is this church is the length and shadow of, of its congregation. Can't blame the Presbyterians down the street or the Baptists or the whoever else cross town. You are this body. You are the length and shadow of the health of the corporate body right here. And so it's a personal word. 
And the speaker is not Mike Avery. The speaker is Jesus Christ. He's, <laughs> if it was my opinion, you wouldn't have too much to worry about. You could take it or leave. But it's not my opinion. It's the risen Lord looking over into the church. And he's talking. Now, I know you're loyal to your church and you don't want anybody giving bad ideas or bad things or saying bad things or gossiping or talking about your church, do you? Well, at least one of you feel that way. (laughs) Of course you don't. And you don't really want people giving their opinion of your church. But could you imagine if Jesus stood up in that balcony tonight and looked down and said, here's what I think. Now that would sober you, wouldn't it? That you would wake up. You'd sort of turn an ear to what he was saying. And you wouldn't argue much with it. Not if your heart was right. You wouldn't be arguing with him. You'd just say, yes, yes, woe is me, for I am undone. Well, that's what we're going to hear in the reading of the word, his opinion. Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, Right. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. And I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. I know you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. I know you found them liars. I know that you have persevered and have patience. I know you've labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Man, this is a five-star church. People ought to line up to pastor. But he goes on. Nevertheless, I know something else. I know. I know that I have something against you because you have left your first love. Now, every time the risen Lord and every time the Holy Spirit takes that illuminating finger and points it into the heart, into the domains of your heart and life. Behind that finger, there's always a healing hand of grace. Always. And so here comes the healing hand. I know, I know you've left your first love, but remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly. And remove your lampstand lamp stand from its place, unless you repent. Father, we have heard your words. They are powerful. They're sharp as a two-edged sword. They, they cut on one side, yet they heal on the other. 
Let those words penetrate our heart tonight like an arrow shot from a bow. Let them do the work that needs to be done here in this church. You know us. You know everything about us. You dwell in unapproachable light. There's nothing hidden from you. And so, Lord, help us tonight as we share this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting what the risen Lord said here. If you wanted to encapsulate it and sort of shorten it, put it in a little bit of a pregnant phrase, he's basically saying to the church at Ephesus, don't neglect your heart. You know, when you look at all that he said about the other churches, and he had comments to make on the other churches, he told the church at Laodicea, don't let affluence breed apathy and alienation. Materialism had gotten the best of them, and they didn't need anything. Truth of the matter is, they didn't need him. To the church at Smyrna, he said, don't work out of fear. That's a terrible place to work from, fear. To the church at Sardis, he said, don't live on the edge. They had a name, they were alive, but they really were dead. To the church at Thyatira and Pergamon, he said, don't tolerate the intolerable. They had that woman Jezebel, that's figurative language. She was teaching there, don't ever tolerate the intolerable. We have some mainline denominations today that are like Thyatira and Pergamon, they've tolerated the intolerable. And God's going to quickly remove their lampstand. But to Ephesus, he said, don't neglect your heart. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, it's all summed up in that simple phrase, you have left your first love. Now, I know you can take a stack of commentaries and and run through those, and almost the consistent theme that you pick up is they say something sort of like this. They say, they left the love they had in the beginning. When they were first brought into the church and first converted by the power of the Holy Spirit working in their heart, they, they were enthusiastic and they were on fire and they had this passion and they had this zeal. But that's kind of cooled off. And now they've left what they had in the beginning. Well, I'm going to sort of maybe, it's not thin ice to me. I think it's solid exegesis, but I'm going to disagree with that. And there's a reason I disagree with it. Agape love is the kind of love he's talking about here. And agape love is not about a feeling. Agape love is about a behavior. Has nothing to do with how you feel. Has nothing to do with your enthusiasm. It has nothing to do with the passion and the goosebumps running up and down your spine. It has nothing to do with that. That's feeling. Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. It has nothing to do with that. Some people feel religious, and they're as mean as the devil himself. But it has nothing to do with feeling. So I don't think he's talking about this passion, this feeling, this excitement that they had in the beginning. What I think he's saying there, and I think the Greek, the exegesis will hold it up. He's saying, you have ceased to make me your first priority. 
I am no longer your first love. I've been demoted down the ranks. And the priority that you placed on me is no longer there. You have left your first love and something else has now become more important than that passion, that love, that commitment to me. You have left your first love. And that's why the risen Lord is saying, you better take care of your heart. Because we live from the heart. It's out of the heart will flow the issues of life. It's out of the heart. It's sort of the it's sort of the uh, the hub. It's the computer hub of our spiritual existence. It's kind of the warehouse that everything else works out of and ships out of. The old country preacher Vance Havner has said it like this: Whatever is down in the well will come up in the bucket. Whatever is in the heart comes out. Somebody grabs their hand and puts it over their mouth. Oh, why in the world did I ever say that? Well, I can tell you why. Whatever's in the well comes up in the bucket. Guard your heart. Don't neglect your heart. Now, why is that warning so important to us tonight? Well, I'll tell you why. There's four reasons why it's important. Because the truth of the matter is, if you don't take care of your heart, if you neglect your heart, your heart can drift. The writer to the Hebrews said it like this in chapter 2. He said, you better take the more earnest heed, lest you drift away from those things that you heard in the beginning. The heart can drift drift. That love for Jesus that keeps Him first and foremost in our lives can begin to drift. I told you last night about uh, the Hebrides revival. The Smith sisters that prayed for years. Duncan Campbell, who was the human instrument. But there's something about the revival in in the Hebrides Islands that I can't find any book that will tell the story of mention this man's name. But Douglas Crossman, who's an English preacher who was a young man under Duncan Campbell. He knew Duncan Campbell well. He knew the man I'm going to talk about well. He was actually just a young man during the time of the Hebrides revival. But Duncan Campbell told Douglas Crossman, and Douglas knew knew this man. Duncan Campbell said that when I was called to go preach in the revival of, of the Hebrides Islands, he preached from place to place. There was a man from Scotland by the name of Colum. The only thing I know is his first name was Colum. Colum was quite an educated man. As a matter of fact, he had a PhD from Oxford University in the original Greek languages. An unbelievable scholar. But he wasn't a man who gave himself to teaching or to the academic world, but he had devoted himself over the years to becoming a man of prayer. And when Duncan Campbell went to preach in those meetings, he took Colin with him and he said, every moment I was preaching, Colin was either in the basement of a church or if the church didn't have a basement, he was in a Sunday school room or even in a building adjoining the church and he would be on his knees praying all the time that I was preaching. 
Duncan Campbell said there's no doubt about it that the power that was generated in those revivals meeting had to be attributed a lot to Colum, who was a great man of prayer. After the revivals were over, as you know, Duncan Campbell died in the late 50s. Douglas Crossman came to America and was spent 20 years here. And he actually lost touch with Colum, had no idea what had happened to him. But Colum was known all over the British Isles, as a matter of fact, the Queen of England presented to Colum, one of, one of her prominent citizens, a hand-carved chair. And right in the back of that chair were carved these words to Colum, the great man of prayer. A great scholar, a great Christian, a great man of prayer. But Douglas Colum leaves, Duncan Campbell dies, Douglas, Col- Douglas leaves, comes to America. Twenty years later, he goes back to England. And Douglas Collin was looking for old Methodist holiness books. And he was driving through the North England countryside. And he rounds a corner and there is an old English church all boarded up. Plywood over the windows. And a big banner hanging over the front door that said, Antiques, Tobacco, and Books. Douglas Collin saw the Douglas saw the word books, and he pulled his little car in. He said, I walked through the doors of that old church, and he said it was, just, it was built like a little rectangle, just a box. He said, when I walked in, he said there was no religious furniture whatsoever. It had been totally stripped. He said there were all sorts of odds and ends of furniture on one side to my left, but on the right, he said there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. He said in the far back corner to the left, He said there was a mattress lying on the floor, a little table with a hot plate and a tea kettle, and an old man stretched out on the mattress. He said, I walked through the door. He said, the old man began to stir, get up off the bed. I guess he assumed he could try to help me, but but," he said, I walked over and looked down and immediately recognized the title of a holiness classic. He said, I picked it up. And right beside it was another, and then another, and then another. He said rows of some rare Methodist holiness classics. And he said, I just by habit opened up the front and looked in the flyleaf. And he said, there was the name of Column. He said, I hadn't thought of Column in years. Column, the great man of prayer. And he said, I picked up another and another, and I kept opening them up. And his name was written in all of those books. He said, I have discovered, this is Column's library. He said, by that time, he said, the old man was probably 15 feet away, shuffling along, had an old ball cap pulled down, cigarette dangling out of his mouth. He said, I turned to the old man and my hands were full of books. And the moment I turned, I looked across the room and there was one of the queen's chairs and written in the back was to Column, the great man of prayer. I immediately assumed Colum passed away. This was his estate. I turned and looked at the old man and and with passion and fervor in my voice, I said to him, Oh, sir, I knew Colum. He was indeed the great man of prayer. I knew him in the Hebrides revival days. Oh, sir, what's happened to Colum? He said the old man shuffled forward, pulled off the ball cap, took the cigarette out of his mouth, straightened his shoulders as best he could, and he said, Douglas, I'm Colin. 
I'm Colin. Douglas Crossman said, Colin? Colin? What happened? And a story unfolds. Like so many stories, I could tell you. There was no major sin. There was no marital unfaithfulness. There was no fraud. There was no theft. But as the story unfold, Colum just simply said, when the revival fires died and the fervor passed away, he said, Douglas, I just began to drift. And here I am. There is no doubt in my mind. I'm looking at some people who had a dynamic and marvelous conversion. There's no doubt in my mind. As our brother said who read us the poem. There came a day in his struggle he finally decided he's just going to surrender it all to the Lord. God could be boss. There's no doubt in my mind there are people listening to me tonight who've experienced that. But the years and time you just began to drift. And Christianity becomes a culture. It becomes just sort of a way I live. It's a creed. It's no longer an intimate, dynamic relationship with the living Lord. Oh, there was no moment when you said, well, you're no longer for... No, there was no such thing like that. It just kind of happened. The heart can drift. But not only that, the heart can actually be drawn away. Peter talks about the heart being drawn away by the things of this world. I want to tell you something. I know everybody you talk to, they're poor. They're having a hard time. They're struggling. <laughs> if you have a home, if you, if you live in your own home and drive a car, you're in the top 15% of the wealthiest people in the whole world. Most of the people in the world live on $2 a day. And it's easy how this Western American materialism can work its way like a slithering worm right up into the center core of our being. And we get used to a lot of nice stuff. And it's amazing how that stuff gets a hold of us. You better hold this world real loose. Because you can't love the world and love the Father at the same time. Ruth and I have the best neighbor in the whole world. Everybody ought to have a good neighbor like us, but I'm telling you, he, he, he's always buying something else. And my wife and I, we, had a, we lived in a three-story home when I was president at GBS, had, lots, had, to ha- had to have a lot of furniture. But when we left there, boy, we just slimmed down. We simplified our life, and we're committed to keeping it simple. He came over to our house one day and sat down and just kind of looked around. He said, where's your stuff? 
<laughs> you sat in his house, you'd see it. It's all on display. It's interesting to me how stuff can get a hold of us. Your heart can be drawn away. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Otto Koning. Quite an interesting name. I wouldn't want to be tagged that way myself, but that's his name. Otto Koning. Actually, we had him at GBS one year. He's a 48-year veteran missionary to Papua New Guinea. He was there with the G-string days, the, war, tri, the fighting tribe days, the warrior days, the witchcraft days. He was there early on. The lines were sharp. There was Satan and there was God, and those lines were very, very clear. He gave 48 years of his life to that work. He produced a book called The Pineapple Story. It went, it went around the world. You, can, you go on YouTube now, you can still hear Otto Conning tell the pineapple story. It's an amazing story. We had him speak at GBS at one of our missionary conventions. He's old now. He's, he was up in his 80s by this time, in his early 80s. I'd never met him, and uh, I'd heard about his, his book. I heard about the pineapple story, but we invited him. The head of our intercultural studies department had him, brought him in. It was on Sunday night, and I was crossing the street going over to the campus to start the service. The head of our department, Dr. Dan Glick, met me in the middle of the street before I could get on campus, and he said, he said hey, Otto Koning's here, and he had a real concerned look on his face. And I said, well, I, I looked at him and I said, well, I said, isn't that good? Don't we want him here? And Dan said, yeah, but he drove up in a hearse, a big black hearse. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, I'm not. And he said, it's got back there the big long window on either side. He said, it's got big placards that said Jesus saves on both sides. That's true. He does. I've proclaimed it all of my life. But I ain't driving a hearse with placards in it that say that. I said, oh, no, Dan, you have brought a genuine nut to our campus. He said, what do we do? He said, it's parked right in front of the chapel where everybody could see it. I said, well, maybe you could get it moved and put it in one of the back parking lots or something. I don't know. That's too couple of idiots were talking. I walk over into the chapel and there he is, stately, gray-haired old man, full beard, just, just, a, just a sweet old man and his sweet little wife. He gets up and he, that Sunday night he tells a pineapple story and it was amazing. It was amazing. The next morning he comes across campus coming from the school cafeteria over to the chapel getting ready to speak again and I saw him, I intersected him, and here he's coming across campus with a great big red ball cap, and right on the front, front embroidered in white, it said, Jesus saves. In my mind, raced back to the hearse, now the hat, I thought, I, I'm all for that, but, and so we walk inside, and we go to chapel, and we start the service, and he gets up to speak. Here's what he said. He said, uh, I'm quite sure some of you are a little bewildered by me. Well, that's putting it mildly as far as I was concerned. 
He said, you wonder why I drive this hearse and you wonder why I wear these hats. Well, I did actually wonder why. And he said, let me tell you a story. And he tells the story of coming home after 48 years on the front lines in the work of God. They came back to Kansas and they landed there. They didn't own a home. They didn't have any retirement benefits. And so they lived in this little small apartment in Kansas. Collected some furniture from various places around circa 1950, 1960 looking stuff. And they had it all around them. And there's a big church in town. Somebody suggested they go there. So they went there went, uh, for Sunday school. And they had over 100 seniors in their Sunday school class. Big church. And he said, we walked in. And he said, the men were, it was a little early. And the men were over here talking, drinking coffee. The ladies were over here talking, drinking their coffee before the class starts. And so I gravitate to the men. My wife gravitates to the women. And we just kind of, we stand there and we, 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 we introduce ourselves and they kind of bring us in, and he said, oh, the, shortly the men get back to their conversation, and they're talking about hunting and fishing and their new Ford truck, four-wheel drive, lariat, and their stocks and bonds and the 401ks and how the stock market's doing, and there is nothing wrong with any of that, okay? So don't panic. Don't fall out on me. Don't get up and leave. Hold steady. You can breathe. It's okay. You can fan if you need to. Nothing wrong with any of it. But that's all they talked about. And the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, and the next Sunday. And the ladies over here, it was, man, I got this $500 purse for $3.99. And the shoes to match, and oh, this stuff, this essential oils, and the interior design, and the decorator. And, and you know, I've, I've been doing some retail therapy this week. That's all they talked about. That's all they talked about. And here's this little missionary couple that poured out their heart for God. They didn't even know the language. He said, about our fifth or sixth Sunday, my wife and I just got up and left. We went home. We knelt down by our little sofa. And I looked up to heaven and I said, God, did we miss it? We don't have any 401k. We don't have any, we don't have any of that stuff. Did we miss it? And he said, God spoke very clearly to me. He said, Otto, no, you didn't miss it. You didn't miss it at all. As a matter of fact, you got it right. And Otto Koning said, I leave the mission field. I come back to Christian America And in six weeks, I feel like I'm losing something. And he said, I was determined I was going to rebel against this present culture, this materialistic world, this love of the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the... I'm rebelling against it. I won't be sucked in. He said, so I went out and bought a hearse. Put those big placards in there. Bought me a ball cap, said, Jesus saves. He said, I drive up the road, and he said, I saw a hitchhiker. Pulled over, and I said, jump in, buddy. And he said, no thanks, keep going. (laughs) But he said, in all reality, he said, I'll tell you why, I do it. 
He said, because I'm not going to get sucked in and drawn into this present world. And he said, never, it has yet to fail me. Of course, I think he's passed away now. But he said, it has never yet to fail. I pull up in Home Depot or Kroger or Lowe's or anywhere else. I drive up in a hearse with these big placards, Jesus saves. I walk into the store with a cap that says Jesus saves. He said, it has never failed a single time. But somebody walks up to me and says, sir, you obviously are a Christian. Would you pray for me? I've got this problem going on in my life. I've got a son that's on drugs. I've got a daughter that's coming from a brother. Sir, would you pray for me? You're not careful. Nothing wrong with stocks and bonds. Don't panic, okay? Don't go sell them. I don't know that there's anything wrong with having nice things. I'm not arguing that point at all. I'm not promoting that stuff. I'm just telling you this. You better hold them real loose. You better hold them real lightly. Or they'll suck you in. And your heart will be drawn away. And you'll forget the main thing. The heart can be drawn away. Did you know that you better guard your heart because the heart can also be defiled? You remember the story in Hebrews 12 about Esau who sold his birthright for a mere morsel of meat and he tried to get it back and he couldn't. He couldn't find any place of repentance. And he said, you be careful lest you become like that and a root of bitterness spring up in your heart and defile you and defile everybody around you. We live in a we live in a we live in a pretty mean world. And there's a real mean devil out there working, roving, seeking who he can poison. And I got a feeling some of you around here. It's easy, easy to let the old devil slip in and yeah, mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. And suddenly you start growing this little Anger and root of bitterness. I pastored in Selma, Alabama. You ever saw the movie Selma, Lord Selma? <laughs> well, I was, in, I was not in the movie, but I was in Selma. Pastored there, 10 years. I'll never forget my first Sunday right out of Bible college, 23 years old, just a young pastor. I was I wanted I thought I was getting there early enough to be the first one there to greet everybody, but lo and behold, there's a lady that beat me. She was a fairly uh, good sized woman. She got there first, and she was we only had two rows of pews, and she was sitting on the left as I came through the back doors, and so I walked in. I was going to greet her as the new pastor and shake hands and you know be friendly. Nothing wrong with that, and I. Turned, she was all the way against the wall on the on the uh, the end of the pew against the wall, and I was in the center aisle. So I turned and started down, going to shake her hand. The pews were solid oak; they didn't have cushions on the bottom. It, before I could even walk two paces, she had a stack of Sunday school books, teachers' quarterlies, or whatever. She slid those down the seat. They 
popped off the end pew like a rifle shot. I stopped dead in my tracks. She looked up at me and said, I quit. That was our introduction. And I said, yes, ma'am. I didn't even know what she's quitting from. But she quit. I wish I could tell you things improved, but in some ways it was downhill from there. The only way I can describe that woman, she was mean and thorny. Thorny. By that, you get close to her and she's going to poke you. As I began to get to know the family, I get to know her, I visited her, I did my best to be a good pastor to her. But she was a broken, damaged woman. Story, she, she had five children with this man. He was a jerk with a capital J. He went out, he, he would, he would, he was... He would, he would brawl him. He was a tomcat and drink and carouse. And one night coming home from the bars and the women and he had an accident, terrible accident. He lost a leg. He lost a kidney. He was on dialysis for the rest of his life. Pretty much an invalid. I mean, he had to be, he had to have care. She was the one to give him that care. And he had to, he was in bed at home and she had to get a job. She got a job in a little factory where they made locks for cars, and she worked there for minimum wage. She worked there 41 years. Her life was hard. I get it. She She has all my sympathy in the world. What I don't get is why she allowed that to make her bitter. I'll tell you something. I get it. There's there's some really, really hard spots in life. And some of you have have walked through some dark, dark, dark places. I get it. You have all my sympathy, all my love, all my concern. But I want to tell you something. If life throws you in the middle of a manure pile, the grace of God can help you come out not stinking enough. That's a pretty crude illustration, but you get the point. Well, she didn't come out not stinking. She came out bitter. I've watched her in public, in Sunday school lessons, run him down. In his presence, say the most unkind things you could ever... Who would, how, why would he want to be a Christian if that's what you are? Well, he gets sick. Dialysis fails. He's dying. I go up to the hospital to try to, the last, the last lap of life. I'm standing by his bed. I said, let's pray. You need to pray. You need to get right with God. He looked at me and he said, ah, don't worry about it, preacher. Man, a good Lord will get it all worked out sometime. Don't, no sweat. Well, he went into a coma and he was dead by midnight. He's in hell tonight if anybody is. We had the funeral. No tears. It was over. That's in August. Fall revival in September. Preacher comes in. Preaches a masterpiece on forgiveness. Bitterness. God the Holy Spirit put a target on her and shot the arrow dead center. I watched her get out of her pew. Walk down. We had little, we call them morning, mourner's benches just like these. 
She dropped down in front of one of those. I was a little hesitant to pray with her. I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, she could be thorny. You kind of kept your distance. But I walked over toward, and I just sort of stopped right here. And I was getting ready to pray with her when I heard her look up. She looked right up, big high ceiling in the church. She looked right up like this, wide open, and I heard her say these words. I heard her look up and say, oh, Cecil, that was her husband. Cecil, please forgive me. It was too late. He was gone. Ladies and gentlemen, life can be pretty rough. You can have problems in the church. Just because this is a house of God, somehow the devil doesn't park his chariot outside. No, he comes right on in. He sits in pews. And he works his devilment. And he doesn't care if it's murder, rape, or cards. He doesn't care what it is. As long as he can get you off the path and slightly distracted and slightly moving in the gentle slope, the gradual slope, he doesn't care because he knows eventually that'll take you right where he wants you to go. And he doesn't care if it's bitterness or ill will or bad faith. He doesn't care. He doesn't care as long as it nudges you away. As long as it plants a seed It'll defile your heart. He doesn't care. Are you listening? Your heart can drift. Your heart can be drawn away. Your heart can be defiled. And lastly, your heart can become disconnected. Now, I'm going to walk a fine theological line here, so listen to me carefully. In our tradition, we don't use a word that some of the Reformed traditions use. They talk about, well, um, I know he's not where he ought to be, but he's just kind of out of fellowship for the time being. John R. Rice, the great Southern Baptist preacher, He said, there'll be many Davids leave the warm arm of a Bathsheba and go straight to heaven in the rapture. Isn't that, that's utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. That's the good man, good man, just had his head screwed on wrong. Badly. But that's where his theology took him. That's not my theology at all. Nor do I believe you backslide in your sleep. Some people will always backslide. No, I don't believe that. You don't get saved one Sunday, backslid the next. That's utter nonsense. Either you never got saved or something else. But I do believe you can, in fact, turn and walk away. I believe that. You can walk away from God. But... I believe there's an area that we don't talk much about because we don't fully understand it like we would. But John said, if we confess our sin 
and forsake that sin. We have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all sin. John talks about having fellowship one with another if. I believe there are some people who have been born again, but because they have neglected their heart, they're not in fellowship with Him. There's no intimacy. There's nothing dynamic going on in their life. I'm not their judge, so I'm certainly not going to say here they're no, uh, they're no longer a Christian. If you want to say that, that's your call. I'm not saying that. I am saying this. You can't live in la-la land forever. There is a point where the roads divide. The Holy Spirit is very, very faithful. Very faithful. And he'll, he'll probe and draw and, and then at some point you just ignore and ignore until you walk away. You choose to go another route. But there are some people in that zone. You could say, oh, Brother Avery, I was converted in 1970 or 1975 or 1980, whenever it was. I don't know. But you know, you know in your heart, it's cold, it's mechanical, and it's not dynamic, and it's not alive, and he's not first. It's been crowded out with a bunch of other stuff. You know that. And the only person who can do anything about it is you. And the risen Lord comes to that person And says, remember, remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Is there such a thing as repentance among believers? Oh, yes, there is. Repent. What does repent mean? It doesn't mean you have to get saved all over again. It just simply means you do 180 You turn away, you acknowledge, you remember, oh God, my heart's grown cold, my heart's become mechanical, this has become creed, this has become culture, this has just become the way I do life. But in my heart, the dynamic, living, intimate relationship is not there. Something else has taken first place. Lord, I repent and do the first works. What is that? It means you start doing again what kept your heart in love with him to start with. Very simple, not complicated. Or else. Boy, that's a big or else, isn't it? Now. I don't need to re-preach that or restate that or rephrase that. I'm here to tell you tonight, if you neglect your heart, trouble's coming. Some of you have neglected your heart. And I'm not here to fuss about how it all happened. It's not my business. But I am here standing between two worlds. Speaking for that one. Speaking to this one. 
trying to be faithful. You know exactly where you are, and the Holy Spirit's faithful to tell you exactly where you are. The problem is, are you going to do something about it or not? The problem is pride. Pride made the devil the devil. And pride can get in the way and say, well, you, you couldn't humble yourself like that. You don't want anybody to know that. You, 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 you don't want to. I know how it works. But let me tell you something. If you're there tonight, and you know you're there tonight, the best thing in the world you can do is humble yourself in the sight of God so that He can lift you up. I have preached to hundreds and thousands of people in many countries of this world, and pretty much we're all the same. I have watched people who have the Holy Spirit has awakened their heart and mind. Yes, that's me. That's exactly where I am. I watched one man one night at Pell City Camp. He was a pilot. I loved him. I knew him. Good man. But he had grown cold. I watched him struggle. Do I move toward God? What do I do? Then I watched him. He made up his mind. Yes, I want God. I, I, want, to, I want my heart to be renewed. He got up out of his seat in front of a large crowd of people and started toward the altar. God met him before he ever got to the altar. He never even got there because he was repenting already in his heart. God isn't interested in you making a scene. God isn't interested in you weeping and wailing and crying out for hours. God isn't interested in any of that. God's interested in you turning from that. And turning to him, that's what he's interested in. And God comes running to the man that comes running to him. Let's stand. Please. I want you to stand. No music, Justin, no nothing. Please, nothing.